Good evening and welcome to the Journey Church. We're so grateful that you joined us tonight. If you'd take your copy of God's Word and turn to Galatians chapter 5, we continue our study on the flesh and the spirit. Uh, for the past several weeks, we have talked about the flesh and the spirit, about which shall we serve, overcoming the conflict between the flesh and the spirit. We've talked about the sin of moral impurity, idolatry and sorcery, hatred and contentions, jealousy and envy. We spent quite a bit of time on outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, and heresies. We talked about the sin of intemperance, and then we moved into the fruit of the Spirit, which was love, and then we talked last week about joy, and tonight we take up on peace. So in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things, there is no law. So another grace experienced by those whose lives are in tune with the Spirit of God is peace. That's what we learn from this text, and that the Spirit of God should induce peace in the children of God, and, they should un and, it, and it should be understandable in light of the fact that, in fact, the Bible says the Heavenly Father is the God of peace. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. And um, I just noticed while we're filming you that the camera just turned off. It's recording. How wonderful. And uh, then we said the Lord Christ is called the Prince of Peace in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. But one might ask, what is this peace enjoyed by those who walk in the Spirit? What, how does one come to have this peace? And how can we be sure to persevere in this peace and enjoy it to the fullest extent? We're living in a time right now that uh, I think could be characterized by one of the most unsettling times. And uh, I know that many believers uh, have a great calm and peace during this time, but there are also many that appear to be very concerned and uh, out of sorts. And so we come tonight to share a little bit about that. And so as we continue this series on the flesh and the spirit, and especially as we focus on the fruit of the spirit in these two verses, we want our attention now to turn to the subject of peace. So number one, we're going to talk about defining peace. Peace is sometimes defined in negative terms, in negative terms, as though peace were simply the absence of conflict. I, I really think that's important to write down, uh, that peace is simply the absence of conflict. For example, Oliver Wendell Holmes, and I quote, said, the only condition of peace in this world is to have no idea or at least not to express them. Uh, that being the ideas. I think that Oliver Wendell Holmes may be saying that uh, his primary teacher is the ostrich who sticks his head in the sand. Uh, the uh, Hindu Bible, the Bhagavad Gita, which is a book of war, says he knows peace who has forgotten desire. He knows peace who has forgotten desire. Well, that's defining peace in negative terms, that it's the absence of conflict. But we're not interested in the negative term. Actually, it's a very positive term when you define it from its biblical 
uh, elements. For example, the Greek word for peace is Irene. Irene, it's the word that we get the name Irene. Uh, it's between individuals. Uh, it means harmony or concord. Uh, in my office, those who come to see me know that I am a avid aviation buff. And right over my desk is a 1 in 200 scale model of the Concorde, which was built by the French and the British um, back in the 1960s and could fly faster than a speeding bullet and cross the Atlantic in about three hours or less. We don't fly the Concorde anymore. But uh, nonetheless, the reason the airplane, that supersonic transport, was called the Concorde is because it was a collaboration between century-old adversaries, the British and the French, the Normans and the Saxons. And so they named the airplane the Concorde. What is interesting about it, though, they could not agree on how to spell it. And uh, so one group puts an E on the end of it and another group doesn't. But that's uh, just to show that even with the airplane, they still have to argue. But it's sitting over my desk with its characteristically droop nose. And uh, it's, it's, uh, that word concord means peace, means peace, harmony. Um, according to a conception distinctly, though, that is particular to the New Testament, Peace is the tranquil state of the soul. It is the tranquil state of the soul assured of its salvation through Christ Jesus. So therefore, peace is a byproduct of assurance, uh, of certainty. And so fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly lot of whatsoever sort it is, because if you have genuine peace with God, then nothing else matters to you anyway. That, that is the, that's the whole kit and caboodle. So rather than simply the absence of conflict, the peace of God provides a condition that is positive in nature in which there is an active fellowship of harmony and concord between God and man. Harmony between God and man. Having defined peace then as a blessing, that ought to be the desire and enjoyed by all, let's consider what the Bible says about number two, the source of peace. We talked about defining peace. Now let's talk about the source of peace. Several things here. First of all, it comes from Jesus who came to bring peace. Uh, particularly Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7 state this very clearly that Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. He is the Prince of Peace. And when He came, as it says in Acts chapter 10 verse 36, He came preaching peace. He came preaching peace. And indeed, uh, He says in John chapter 14 verse 27, He gives a peace that the world cannot give. Uh, my peace I give you, not as the world giveth, but I give it to you, in John 14, 27. That's where he talks about, let not your heart be troubled. Uh, that one can uh, possess even in the midst of tribulation. For example, look at John chapter 16. In the Gospel of John, in the 16th chapter, 
the 33rd verse, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Now, we're in a, the election of, I think it is fair to say, in the United States, we are in the election of our lifetime until the next one, after this. But this is the election of our lifetime. And it's going to be really interesting to me as a person who watches people, who enjoys watching people, uh, who listen and looks for nuances. It's going to be real interesting to see how the Christians respond if, if their candidate doesn't win. Um, to listen to their language. I remember with the last president our country had prior to this one, hearing the most scurrilous things, and I still hear his name spoken of in scurrilous. And I can say with this, although I had strong opinions, I never did that. He was my president because he was the president of the United States, and he would not have been the president had God not seen to it that it happened. And I'm not any worse for it. And even if I was, I have peace with my God, so what can man do to me? And he has commanded me not to fear. He said, you're going to have tribulation in this world, but be of good cheer. And I can tell you, very, very, and this audience here that is with me can tell you, they can tell you the difference between when I'm in good cheer and when I am not in good cheer, and they would all agree that good cheer is better. And I think that's true for all of us. We've tried the other and it doesn't work. So you want to go around making people feel better. Yes, the alternative's not very good. So be of good cheer. Christ has overcome the world. So if my candidate doesn't win, then I plan on going to bed before 10 o'clock. I take my bath every night except tonight at 6.30. I watch Star Trek and I go to bed about 9. I'm not staying up to watch the returns. I know that I will be woken up with a scream in the living room and I'll know and I know and I know what will have happened and, and I will have slept through it but I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. And, and that's not arrogance. That's not, uh, that's not, uh, that's not arrogance. That's not, uh, that's not being an ostrich. There is, what can man do to me? What can man do to you in Christ? He can take your life. Well, you know what? If he takes your life, guess what? If you're in Jesus that night, you're going to have supper with him. Okay? And if you've taught your children to love the Lord, then they're going to be okay. They're going to be all right too. And so, um, does it mean these things are not important, but they're not primary? Our, the thing that is more important is to grow in godliness, to run the race of faith, and to finish it strong. So when it comes from Jesus, who can bring peace? He is the source of our peace. Uh, one can possess it even in the midst of tribulation. Letter B, the peace Jesus brings involves peace with God. If you look at Romans chapter 5, let's just turn over to it. Romans chapter 5. Notice what it says in verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which 
we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulation. Let me read that again. He says, we also glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For, then, for when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrated His own love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that great? That's the whole hinge of the book of Romans right there. Much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through Him. For it's when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through His death of His Son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So the reality of it is, it boils down to... If, if, if our concern is just so worldly and so temporal, then we are too attached to the worldly and too attached to the worldly and the temporal. That is not the biblical way to live when you have been told to be anxious for nothing. When you have been told here that the fruit of the spirit is peace. Is peace. Okay? And so which is accompanied by rejoicing. And love, go back over here to Romans 5. Just stay there. In fact, I've, I've camped out here. Romans 5, beginning verse 2. Through whom also we have access to faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, character produces hope. And then he goes on, it's made possible by the loving sacrifice of Jesus in verses 6 through 9. And then over here in chapter, uh, or I'm sorry, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, it continues by the virtue of his resurrected life. In Hebrews chapter 7, it says right here in verse 30, 25. There's no 30, 25. In verse 7, chapter 7, verse 25. It says right here, it says, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So I know that whatever happens in, in 13 or 14 days, Jesus is still going to be making intercession. So we have peace with God. It's Romans 5, 1 through 11. You need to mark that down. We have peace with God in Christ Jesus, Romans 5, 1 through 11. But then we have peace with man, which is Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Peace with man, which is Ephesians 11 through 22. So I'm going to go to Ephesians now. Ephesians chapter 2. Just one page over. And the Jews and Gentiles were once alienated from one another and they can be at peace with Jesus. Look at verses 11 through 14. It says, In Him also we obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, that we who first trusted Christ should be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. So Jews and Gentiles who are once alienated, and of course um, 
what's amazing is I just read you a wonderful passage, but that's from chapter 1. Yeah. Well, hey, that's great. It fits. But go to chapter 2 now. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and stranger from the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation." So the Jew and the Gentile now are at peace with Jesus Christ and are, are one. And it is made possible through the same act which makes peace with God, the death of Jesus Christ. Look at verses 15 through 16. Having abolished in His flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in the ordinance, so as to create in Himself one new man from two, thus making peace and that He might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity." Alright? And Jesus has come preaching peace to all mankind. Look at verse 17, "...and He came and He preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who are near." Okay? And the wonders of this peace are described by Paul, a peace that allows access by one Spirit to the Father. Look at verse 18. He says, For through Him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. And we have peace where we can be fellow citizens of the saints. He says in verse 19, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. Okay? And then what else does he go on to say? We're members of the family of God, the same household, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, it says, and the peace where all can be a temple, a peace where all can be a temple in the Lord, a habitation of God's Spirit. Look at verses 20 through 22. It says, having been built on a foundation of the apostles and the prophet, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building fitted together grows into a holy temple of the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. There's only one time I've ever heard a sermon on that passage that I can remember about being built on the foundation of the Apostles of the Prophet. And it was when I had my graduation in December of 1999 with my Masters of Divinity with Biblical Languages at Travis Avenue Baptist Church. My wife and my family was there at the time, and I was receiving my master's degree, and upon receiving that, going straight into the vocational ministry. And uh, that's the only time, other than when I've preached Ephesians, that I, I remember that. And this is a pivotal, this is a pivotal passage, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus, him Christ, Jesus Himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into the holy temple of the Lord. That's what we are. The church is not the cornerstone. The people of God is not the cornerstone. In this country, the church is not the cornerstone. The people of God is not the are not the people of God, that's a collective noun, are not the is not the cornerstone. It is still Jesus Christ. Period. If you go to Washington, D.C. and look at how Washington is laid out, Washington was laid out, the District of Columbia, downtown, was laid out in a Masonic manner. 
the Masons, uh, the, they're the ones that laid out the city. And if you look at how the city is designed from above, like if you take a satellite picture, you can definitely tell that it is designed that way. And many of the buildings you can go and you can see where there is a cornerstone that was laid here by the Masons, the White House, the Capitol, all of that stuff. Um, many, many places probably all over. I, the church I used to pastor uh, in this town, the cornerstone was laid by the Masons and oddly enough that stone has been removed. And, uh, um, but it, it was, it's, it's right over there going into the fellowship hall. And uh, uh, the cornerstone is Jesus Christ. I laid a cornerstone. There's a building in India at a university that's named after me. I couldn't tell you where it is. I can't tell you how to get there. I can't find it on a satellite, but it's the Dr. James T. Egan School of Theology building. I laid its cornerstone. But the cornerstone of, I, I didn't know I was, but the cornerstone of, of, of any society that is going to be a society of peace is Jesus Christ. Any home that's going to have peace, it's not the mezuzah on the door that contains the scripture. It's Jesus. And it's Jesus in your heart. And if any person is going to have peace, then it's got to be, Jesus has to be the cornerstone. He is the chief cornerstone, which the Bible says, and the builders rejected. Right? Who were the builders? The builders of the temple. And they rejected. Some of you have been with me. Some of you joining us by on the airways have been there, you can go underneath the Temple Mount in Israel and go put your hands on the very stones that Solomon laid. They are eight feet by eight feet by 20 feet. Solid stone. No cracks, no fissures, no anything. And they, they to this day don't know how they, were, how they laid them. With slave labor you can do anything. I mean, you can build the pyramids of Giza, uh, the obelisk. You can do anything with slave labor. But that's what. But that was built. But that, it doesn't have to be huge. In fact, there is a place underneath the temple where you walk, and there is a place where Jesus talks about the cornerstone, and there is a cornerstone that is set. Now, this is really cool. I'm getting chill bumps telling you this. We take you down this this tunnel. And you come to this to what would have been the center of the town before it was all buried, and there is a cornerstone that has been rejected. It's a cornerstone that is sitting there, that has been unearthed, that is sitting there for no purpose except taking up space, and that's right where Jesus said, "And the cornerstone the builders rejected." Y'all probably seen it. It absolutely makes every hair on your head and your skin stand to attention because you're standing right where Jesus was. The stone that the builders rejected. And so many people are denying their inheritance of peace because they have decided that Fox News, CNN, CNNBC, ABC, NBC, who else did I get? Who else is there? CBS. And Drudge Report, Breitbart, whatever you want to read, conspiracy theories, that's where they're going to get their peace. There is no peace. It's Jesus. You cannot reject the cornerstone and not experience fear. All right? 
So this is a biblical concept. This is the fruit of spirit. And so how about this though? How about, you know what, as a counselor, I have found this to be the most systemic problem. People don't know how to have peace with themselves. I, I, can, I can fake it, and maybe you can fake peace with somebody else. You can always be kind. You know, somebody's a criminal, you can at least say they work hard. Right? I mean, the devil works hard. You know, you can say something nice. Um, but when it comes to peace with yourself, I was talking to a lady today and she said, you know, I just don't get into gossip. I said, I know, and I start gossiping with myself. And she said, well, preacher, that's when you turn the mirror around. And I thought, that is so funny. <laughs> Quit looking in the mirror and gossiping. I mean, that's just funny. But why do we gossip? Lack of peace. We think that information is going to make us feel better. So let's talk about peace with self. Peace with one's own self is mostly a byproduct, listen, of one being at peace with God. When people say, I'm so worried, I'm so concerned, I'm so troubled, there is a fundamental problem. Peace with yourself is peace with God and of being peace with, at peace with those around us being at peace with those around us. So when Jesus brings us peace with God and man, peace then within naturally follows. And we've just read in Ephesians, if you start in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, you can see what Jesus has done for you. And in fact, it's not what Jesus has done for you, it's more than that, it's who you are in Ephesians 2, 11 through 20. It's actually who you are. So there is this peace, one that blesses the soul from within. Well, where does it come from? It comes from God. Uh, it surpasses all understanding. Uh, it serves as a fortress to guard our hearts and our minds, and it comes through Christ Jesus. Look over here at Philippians 4, verse 7. Philippians 4, verse 7, which says... And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So here's the thing. You might wonder this question. We live in an age of, of constant, a constant barrage of information. We live in an age of fake news. We live in an age of fake polls. We live in an age of false preachers. We live in an age of false husbands and wives. We live in an age of just fakes, right? And so you can spend all your time trying to figure out what's real and what's false, or you can do like they've done at the Treasury Department in the counterfeit division. When they train somebody to learn how uh, to discover if a $20 bill is a counterfeit, they don't put them in there with a counterfeit. They just give them the real thing. And once you've learned the real thing, then it's not a problem. I'll give you an example. When, uh, when, when I married my lovely, beautiful wife, uh, she did not cook with imperial sugar. I grew up eating imperial sugar. That's how I got round. And it's, and it's how I got sweet, so sweet, so sweet. 
And uh, I can tell if something's not made with imperial sugar. And the reason is, is because I was raised on imperial sugar. I can tell the difference between Heinz ketchup and Hunt's ketchup. I can tell the difference between ketchup without corn syrup and with it. And I know you can too. You know the difference between great value chicken noodle soup and Campbell's chicken noodle soup. You can just tell. And so how much more then the counterfeit? We know the difference between, and I'm not saying other sugars are counterfeits, or soups or ketchups. But my point is when you're experiencing, your experiences is with the real thing, for I'll give you the piece de resistance, the greatest marketing disaster in the history of the modern age is when Coca-Cola changed its formula back in the early 80s to New Coke. That was the greatest marketing disaster ever. I, it's never been rivaled. Maybe the Boeing 737 Max, I don't know. But uh, nah. Um, and, and anybody that drank a Coke could tell the difference between Coke and what they called New Coke. And then they came out with Coca-Cola Classic, and now 40 years later, it's finally just Coke again, the original recipe. And nobody knows how to make it. But once you've had something different, you know what's familiar. How much more if your diet is totally consumed by the Word of God? And then you, 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 I'm not recommending you say this, but you could literally almost so devil throw everything you have at me because there's nothing you can do to me. You can give me boils, you can do all this, but I will not curse my God because you intimately know Him. And uh, that, that's because you, you, you're familiar with the real thing. Okay? So it comes from God, it surpasses understanding, and it serves as a fortress. And by the way, the word fortress is uh, the word that we get. It, it comes from the word comfort. It comes from the word comfort. And what is, what is the Holy Spirit called? The comforter, right? He's our fortress. That's another study for another day. When one is in Christ Jesus enjoying the blessings of justification along with reconciliation with both God and man, peace is naturally a byproduct. But there is any, if there's anything that we should be doing to preserve peace, we have from God. We, is there anything we should be doing to preserve that peace that we have from God in Christ Jesus? Indeed there is. Indeed there is. There is something to do. So that's number three, preserving peace. Just a couple of things. Number one, maintaining peace with God and self requires keeping our minds set on God. That is actually Isaiah 26, verse 3. Number two, it's loving God's Word and heeding its commandments. Um, a young man by the name of William Wilberforce, he was pastored by a famous pastor in England named John Newton. You know his name, I'm sure. But William Wilberforce was a man who was a member of Parliament. And for 40 years he went to Parliament quoting Psalm 119. 
Psalm 119 verse 165 talks about keeping the commandments of the Lord and heeding the commandments. This was the man that began the abolition of the slave trade for the British Empire and he learned his lesson of studying the Scripture from John Newton, the man who wrote Amazing Grace, who was his pastor. It's a wonderful story. You can read Eric Metaxas's book, Amazing Grace, if you want to read something that is absolutely just a treasure. And also you can read the biography of John Newton. Uh, being diligent in prayer, Philippians 4, 6 through 7 and filling our minds with spiritual thoughts. Just, just look again at Philippians. We just, we're just right there. We have the time. Philippians chapter 4 beginning in verse 6. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. It, I'm, I'm still a young minister. I've only been a minister for 20 years. I've been a Christian for over 30. Not the best either. I listened to a man the other day that I respect to the highest degree as both a godly man and as a godly minister that I've never met that I would like to meet. He's from Scotland. And he said the majority of his ministry, he has been teaching people and reassuring them of the love of God. This man is taught at the greatest seminaries. He is, uh, he is so well written even uh, uh, and well read, and his humility is, is something to behold. And I just marveled at how is it that a man of such power had to spend his ministry reminding people that God loves them? What kind of people was he pastoring? that he could not communicate that to them. And I've tried every which way to figure it out, and I haven't. But here's one thing I'd, I find myself being struck here as I read this. If I've had to remind people of anything in my ministry more than any other thing, it's this, is that they don't have to be anxious if they will go to the Lord in prayer and supplication. And I'm sitting there going, I have the same education, and all of that stuff, and look at me, I still have to do this. Help remind my people to go in prayer and supplication that they don't have to be anxious for anything. I guess it's just part of tending sheep. That's just what you do. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report. In other words, if it's not on TV, you're getting close to it. <laughs> Get it? Ha uh ha. -huh. If there is, other than this present channel, if there is any virtue, is there anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things, and the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. If, if your diet is just consumed with talk radio and the television, dear friend, there's a great cartoon that was in the paper not too long ago. A man is complaining to his wife saying, I have absolutely no peace. And she walks in and she turns the TV off and he goes, ah. We are, uh, years ago there was a book entitled, We Are Entertaining Ourselves to Death. And it's a picture of a family sitting in front of a TV with no heads. Because it doesn't take a mind to watch it. Maintaining peace with one another. 
uh, is being at peace with God first. That's the second thing. Maintaining peace with one another requires being at peace with God first and a concentrated effort to pursue peace. The first one is Proverbs 16:7. How can we hope to make peace with others when we are not at peace within? And making peace with God gives us peace within whereby we're in better chances to make peace with other people. And the second part I just said was the concentrated effort to, per, to pursue peace. Look with me over in 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. The Bible says, beginning in verse 8, it says, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. That's one thing I love about the church I pastor, is they're single-minded. Love as brothers and sisters, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eye of the Lord is on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Do you recognize the warning that is there? He's not watching the person that's wronged us. He's watching us how we treat the person that wronged us. And then he says at the very end that the, that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And he just tells you what evil is. Repaying, uh, speaking deceit against those that have hurt you, uh, using your tongue for evil, uh, turning to evil, not pursuing peace, not being righteous, not praying. Wow, there's a list there. And so this talks about how to be at peace with others. And remember... In James it says, why are there wars amongst you? It's because people's hearts are, are wicked. They're, they, they, they choose not to get along. I saw a great picture today of, of, a, of two presidential supporters, one carrying one candidate's flag, and the other one carrying the other candidate's flag, and there's a photo of them standing in the middle of the street shaking hands with big old smiles. And that's the America I know. That's the America I believe in. On opposite sides. On opposite sides. And yet there they are. They're under one flag in this country. Those from other countries, you may not understand what I'm talking about. And it's okay. It is something that is truly native to we the people. But the reality of it is, is that in Christ Jesus we can be, we can be at peace. We can be at peace if we're at peace within. So as we wrap up, we don't want to return evil for evil or reviling for reviling, even when our blood is boiling. We just know it doesn't work out. And, uh, and there is no one that needs that less and more than me. Only then can we expect the, to love life and see good days. This is a promise I would have you write down. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. As we go into the final stretch of the election... Make sure that you season your words with peace because the Lord says that those who do so will love life and see good days. Ref please note that the pursuit of peace does not require, because some of you are wondering this, the pursuit of peace does not require the compromise of truth. It does not require the compromise of truth. Wisdom that is from above in James chapter 3 verse 17 says is first 
pure than peaceable. Okay? That's the truth. God's Word says it. That settles it. But if we wish to bear the fruit of righteousness, it must be sown in peace by those who make peace, which is James 3.18. Okay? So in conclusion, let's never forget that Jesus as the Prince of Peace came preaching peace. He died on the cross to make peace possible with God, man, and self. And is the conduit through which God now grants peace to man as pronounced the night He was born in Luke chapter 2, to declare peace on earth and goodwill to men. Indeed, the, elements of, of peace is a key, the element of peace is a key feature of His kingdom, as is mentioned over here in Romans chapter 14. Romans 14, which says these words beginning in the 17th verse. It says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, for he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify one another. And so he says in Colossians 3, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Let it rule in your hearts. And so now may the Lord of peace Himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. That's 2 Thessalonians 2, I'm sorry, 3 verse 16. There's another one of those 316 passages. You can go anywhere in the New Testament and look up a chapter 3 and a verse 16 and you're going to get something good out of it. I don't know why it is that way, but it is. And so do you wish to ensure that the Lord is always with you? That you might experience the peace that passes understanding? I don't know about you, but yes is my answer then heed what Jesus said to His disciples shortly before ascending to heaven. He said these words in Matthew. And I want you to turn there and look at them as I close, as I actually finish. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. You know it as the Great Commission, but it's one of five Great Commissions. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. It doesn't belong to the Supreme Court, the United States Senate, the House, or the President. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. It doesn't say make converts. It says make followers of Jesus, teaching them, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen and amen. Father, we do thank You for the Word of God. We thank You for this exhortation to peace. We receive it with gratitude, and Lord, we receive it as obedient children, thanking You for feeding us with such rich truth from Your Word. It is our prayer, O oh God, that as we live in uncertain days, we may be certain of the peace within our lives and the peace that we share with one another because of the peace that we have with you through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great night. We'll see you soon.